So we all have favorites. We just don't admit who our favorites are sometimes. So I will say, obviously, I love hearing the voices and to see individuals that we don't see all the time. I have a, a special appreciation for Brother Charles Joyner because my wife grew up in his church and she is uh, uh, actually she came to this service this morning. Normally she's at the second service, uh, but she came here today because she wanted to be able to hear you share this morning. So thank you for sharing with us this morning. If there are kids that are still in here that haven't made their way, I think sometimes they just know Pastor Mike forgets and they've already made their way. If not, you see uh, you've got some volunteers over here to my left and your right. Uh, Children's Church is available to them. It is such a blessing to have you with us. Let's begin again with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to spend some time together with the body of Christ. I pray now that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd allow the word to come alive so that we might be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, every classic car was created for something special. In fact, it was special. It had a date that it came off the assembly line, and its beauty and its power led to a specific price tag. Some vehicles, is it dark in here or is that just me? It seems darker than normal today. I've looked back twice thinking, is there something missing? <laughs> Anyways, light is missing. That's good. <laughs> These classic cars would become known by both their appearances and what they could do on the road. And every one of these new vehicles served as an artistic expression of the one who had designed that vehicle. I want to give you an example. You see the Firebird Trans Am that is here. When I think of a classic car, my first thought goes back to my grandmother. That would be on my dad's side. She was a little old white-haired lady that probably stood about five foot, two inches tall and weighed somewhere around 100 pounds, soaking wet. But she drove a beautiful orange Firebird Trans Am, much like the one on that screen. I will say that's in better condition than the one she had. She looked so out of place in that car, but that was her baby. And it was beautiful. In fact, if anything, out of all that she had when she passed away, I wish we still had that vehicle today. But over time, those beautiful new cars that we often refer to as classics will begin to deteriorate. Accidents happen, tires and parts wear out, and the paint begins to fade. After years of abuse and neglect, as well as normal wear and tear, you end up with something that appears run down and of far less value. In fact, what often happens is these beautiful works of art end up sitting in a junkyard covered in rust and ruin, and continually wasting away in the elements. And then one day, the right person comes along and notices not only the rust and the damage that has occurred over the years, but they see the potential that lies within that vehicle. The individual knows what appears to be nothing more than junk today has the potential to be something great and beautiful once more. And so they purchase the vehicle. He 
The individual redeems the vehicle, paying whatever price has been placed on the vehicle. And then he takes it home and begins the process of restoration. The work to be done seems significant. He'll have to tear it down completely, replacing almost everything from bumper to bumper, from top to bottom, inside and out. This car will be completely overhauled. In many cases, even the engine will need to be rebuilt or completely replaced. But when the restoration is completed, you're talking about something that is amazing, likely even appearing more beautiful than when it was first built. Part of what makes such a vehicle so beautiful the second time around is in knowing that this car has been redeemed from destruction. It is in knowing that somebody meticulously cared for and invested in this vehicle so that it became a part of who they were. In some ways, it became a part of the family. The finished product can never be considered average again. Instead, it will always stand out as something incredibly spectacular. What if I told you that this story of vehicle restoration is not so much about a car, but rather about the story of humanity and what God has done for each of us? The book of Genesis tells the story of God's creation. He created mankind in his image, and then he examined his creation. Absent of sin, he said, it is very good. He saw beauty, and he saw perfection. Remember, Adam and Eve had not yet committed sin. He breathed life into Adam and Eve and saw even his own essence within them. And although nobody knows how long Adam and Eve remained in the Garden of Eden prior to the introduction of sin, we know that they, their beauty was likely untainted for a very long time. They walked and they talked with God in the Garden and they simply enjoyed intimacy with one another and with God. But then sin entered the world. And rust and ruin followed soon after. They made sinful choices and even their offspring, including us, were suddenly born with a sinful nature. It wasn't long before the luster and the beauty began to fade. And although mankind tried to be good enough, humanity eventually found itself wasting away in a fallen world awaiting its final destruction, much like those cars. But then the right man, and I'm referring to Jesus Christ, came along and he made restoration possible. I'm obviously speaking of Jesus here. He came down to the junkyard that we call humanity, that we call earth, and he paid the redemption price and then began the work of restoration removing the rusted and the broken parts while adding new and improved parts as well. He took care of all of the beauty on the outside. He probably even replaced the seats inside. But there was still something that needed to change. You see, we needed the Spirit of God to dwell within us. And in many ways, that's where we get what I'm going to call the supercharged engine this morning. Along the way, we became his baby, the thing that he would pour himself into constantly because he loves us and is so proud of what we are becoming. 
the finished product is something to celebrate. How many of you look forward to the day that you will enter into heaven's gates and you will be able to rejoice over the presence of the Lord, knowing that all that we have been through, all of the junk, all of the difficulty, all of the rust, and all of the things that we hated about this life will be gone. I know I look forward to it, but I'm still in the process of getting ready for it. This restoration story is similar to what is found in the book of Romans chapter 8, and I want us to take a look at that for a few moments this morning. If you would, I invite you, if you are one of those who like to read along in the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to actually be looking at about 18 verses this morning. Last week, we talked about what we were devoted to. In the New Testament church, we used Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where we looked at they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And as we look at a New Testament church, those are things that will always be present. I will only add that something else that will always be present is God's transforming work in the lives of his people. God always desires to take those that are broken and destroyed and to make them new into his image. Do you still believe in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ today? I'll begin reading this morning by reading the first four verses from Romans chapter 8. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Within that statement, there is a clear suggestion that there previously was. There is now no condemnation, but that means before there was condemnation. Although humanity was created in the perfect image of God, the introduction of sin amongst mankind resulted in condemnation. The warning that God had given to Adam and Eve, if they were to sin, then they would surely die. And so what that means is the wage of sin was always going to be death. It wasn't something that Paul came up with or someone else later in the New Testament. The wage of sin all the way back at the beginning of creation would be death. That's why since that time, with only two exceptions being Enoch and Elijah, every human being to have lived has also eventually died. That's the law of sin and death. Even Jesus, the sinless son of God, experienced death as he took on the sins of all of humanity. But it's about more than death. The sin of Adam and Eve also resulted in a tainted world so that even the life we live on earth is less than what God had originally intended. 
You know, Adam and Eve, as they lived in the garden, they lived in all the perfection of his creation. When God looked upon his creation, he said, it is very good. Sin came in and things began to change. I've often wondered at how long Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden prior to sin's arrival. A year? Maybe 10 years? A thousand years? 10 million years? Who knows? But also, who cares? The point is that time didn't matter because death was not even a thought for them. Their bodies weren't decaying. They ate from the tree of life and they drank from the river of life. But the moment sin entered the world, all of that changed. Now, because of Jesus, there is no condemnation for us, but there was. Adam and Eve, as well as all those who would follow, they would do all that they could to keep the law of God so as to remain in a right relationship with him. But it seemed that all of their efforts at fulfilling the law were never good enough. That's what verse 3 is talking about. The law being powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Sin would still dominate their lives, and there would always be a need for another sacrifice, something to make up for where we had fallen short. But it would be Jesus Christ who would become the payment for all of our sin. He was able to make up for where we had fallen short. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus Christ was the centerpiece of everything in the New Testament church, everything they would stand on. It was the recognition that in and of themselves, they were not enough, but Jesus Christ had made a way for them to once again be made right with God. You know, so often we can make church about a whole lot of other things. We can make it about the dynamic personalities that people have, or we can make it about the style of music that we use, or the talent that individuals have in the church, or maybe about what type of ministry is provided for our children or for our youth or whatever else. And we can make the church about an awful lot of things. But among the New Testament church, the church was about Jesus Christ and what he had done, and what he had said. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As this passage continues, we also see just as we are no longer condemned, just as we are no longer sitting in that junkyard waiting for our utter destruction, we see that God desires to make us new. And this includes not just fixing that which is broken, but making us completely new, even giving us new parts. Look with me, beginning in verse 5, it says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Last week, I talked about the importance of renewing our minds. And as I talked about it, I pointed to the scripture as a primary source of renewal. It's not about listening to some other 
blogger, somebody who has great insight, some other theologian somewhere else, but rather we are to renew our minds by, by allowing the word of God to become a part of who we are. We've watched things on television. We've listened to podcasts. We've read constant news articles. We've even been sucked into conversations with friends. And while these things can be beneficial to us at times, they also are a cheaper, less valuable substitute for what we really need, which is the word of God in our lives. That's where our foundation will come from. A couple years ago, Andrew, my son, had damaged the front end of his truck. He's had issues with trucks. I'm just saying it. He can play the drums really, really well. But he's had vehicle issues for a while. The cost of the repairs can be pretty ridiculous. So we decided to do a little bit of a do-it-yourself repair job. I found a retailer online who had all the parts. We set about to replace the, the grill and a few other parts. Let me first say that I am not the best mechanic in the world, so there's a good chance that I was not going to get it all right regardless. But to make things worse, not everything was a perfect match when it arrived. It's the downside of ordering online. It looks in the picture like it's going to fit perfectly, but it doesn't really. I guess the point of that is that just because something is cheaper or easier, it isn't always better. I'd have been better off either taking it to a professional or getting the name brand parts that I knew would fit. In the same way, we'd all be better off going right to the source, which is God's word, as opposed to depending on someone else to renew our mind for us. I love the fact that you listen to your pastor when I preach. I think that's a healthy thing that we ought to do. But if this is the only place that you get the word of God, you are cheating yourself and you are settling for less than what God has for you. Yes, I want you to spend time listening to the pastor preach. And it's not a bad thing to have individuals who have podcasts and different things that you listen to throughout the week, but you need to spend time in God's word. If not, you are cheating yourself and you are cheating the Lord cheating your faith. Our passage says those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. My question to you is, what is your mind fixed upon today? You've already talked about the fact that it was sin of the flesh that led to death and it was Jesus Christ who offers us life. But I want to draw your attention to verse 7 for just a moment. I, I kind of I debated whether or not to share this. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Maybe you've never seen yourself as hostile to the Lord. Maybe you've looked at yourself and you say, I'm a good person. I do good things. I want you to know that according to this passage, there's no such thing as a middle ground. You're either governed by the flesh or you're governed by the spirit. 
I've talked with someone this past week who was talking about they're not necessarily atheists. They're not agnostic. They just really don't care. But they're good. They're kind of choosing the middle ground. But the problem is there is no middle ground. You're either governed by the flesh or you're governed by the spirit. And the problem is if you're governed by the flesh, according to verse 7 here, you are hostile toward God. That means you stand in his way. You stand against him. Too many people in the church have become good people who maybe they, somewhere along the way, began to compare themselves to others. And they say, well, I'm not like all these people way over here because these people are ungodly. I'm actually more like those right here. God says, but you're not over here which is where I called you to be in the first place. Either you are governed by the flesh or you're governed by the spirit. There is no in between. I want you to know today that if you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I know you say, pastor, these are all people in church. We all know this. Yes, we do, but there are far too many that attend church every single Sunday, yet they are still governed by the flesh. Maybe they might be just a little bit better than some of those other people, but they're not yet governed by the Spirit, and that's a problem. It is time for us to fully surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. There was an expectation in the New Testament church that the people of God would be devoted to the apostles' teaching, and we ought to do the same. It's not about us getting what we want. It's about us becoming who God intended for us to be. That's the next part of the passage that I I really want you to pay attention to this morning. In fact, if I were to identify one thing that I want you to get out of this message today, it is this. Listen, beginning in verse 9, as we see what God has to offer. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. So in other words, you are not this guy over here. You're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be over here. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. This is a literary tool that was commonly used in the Old and New Testament for the purpose of emphasizing something important. Over and over again in this paragraph, we're talking about the same thing. The Spirit of God living in you. The paragraph begins with a contrast saying that you're not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. Remember that the flesh has become corrupted by the presence of sin, and it is death and destruction that awaits it. But when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, it is life that's better than we have ever imagined possible that awaits us. 
using the image of a car that is dead and sitting in a junkyard, imagine that you've already fixed all the rust and put a new paint job on that car. You've already taken care of all the outside stuff. But you have to do more than just fix the outside. You know, those who call themselves Christians, we spend a lot of time trying to fix the outside. What do you do with the inside? On one of our trips to Birmingham, we had the privilege to visit a place called the Barber Motorsports Museum. It's huge, and it's really cool to see all the different sports cars that are present. But the truth is that many of them are nothing more than the shell of a vehicle. Literally, the motor is not even present in many of them. Well, this is the moment that you drop that brand new supercharged engine into where the old motor used to sit. The outside already looks good, but suddenly there is power and there is a roar that is deep within you. And the moment that you hit the gas, everybody knows that you're not the same car that you were before. Why? Because now the Spirit of God has been poured into your life. It has replaced that which was missing, that which was broken down. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And in Galatians 2.20, we read Paul's words, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love that. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The presence of Christ in your life, the Spirit of God in your life changes everything. Can you say that it is Jesus who is living in you today. The thing that this is, the thing is that this is not some optional thing for us. The passage says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Listen to me for a moment. That means that if you are still living, trying to do this based on your own capabilities, the capabilities of your old motor, you're probably not as good as, you're not in as good a place as you think you are. The moment you surrender, you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is made available to you. And that Spirit of God becomes God's tool of transformation within you. He empowers you to be new, not just on the outside, but to be new on the inside. The question arises, what are you going to do with what God has put in you? Verses 12 and 13 say, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You've been taken from death 
into life. You have been redeemed by the master mechanic. You've been rebuilt from the ground up, and now you've got this supercharged engine, also known as the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Now, what are you going to do with what God has put in you? Do you keep running like a a barely surviving, half-broken-down vehicle? Or do you unleash the power that God has put in you? Kind of my thought here is you've got this brand new engine, this beautiful car that looks amazing. Are you still going to act like you're just an old beat up station wagon? Probably not. But I wonder how many people who will attend church this Sunday are still living like that old beat up station wagon believing that they're just the same person they were before. But I want you to know that the Spirit of God desires to transform your life so that you will never be the person that you were before. You were made for more. I remember my grandmother got pulled over one day in that Firebird Trans Am. She was going downhill and well above the speed limit. When the officer asked her why she was in such a big hurry, She responded that you can't go downhill in this thing without speeding. She said it just happens naturally. While her logic was wrong, and by the way, she did get a ticket, even though I think as an officer, I probably would have let her go. You can do the speed limit simply by using the brake pedal, the other one that's down there. I do appreciate her thought. If you've got all that power, all the power of a muscle car, why would you settle for being the old station wagon? We have an obligation, and it's one that the New Testament church fully understood. God has given us so much. We cannot continue to act as if we are average, decaying, just waiting for destruction to overtake us. We must live allowing the power of God within us to determine everything that we do. And while I said, uh, I know I'm, I'm, I'm out of time, but you guys okay if I just go a couple minutes late? All right. That's all I needed was one. Thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> while I said earlier that the supercharged infilling of the Holy Spirit was the most important thing that I would talk about today, let me also add that what I'm about to share is perhaps the most encouraging thing that you'll hear today. There's one last thing I get from this passage. For some of y'all, your pets have become a part of the family. But for a true car enthusiast, it is the car that becomes a part of the family. In fact, I'll add that for years I have named my vehicles. Actually, my daughter has, what's the name you've given to your truck? Loretta. Who names their car Loretta? I had Carl the Cavalier. You got a car named Loretta? You stole that. (laughs) We give our cars names as if they are real people. Well, in our passage today, we see that those who are moved from death to life, those who are redeemed from this junkyard, those who are rebuilt and filled with the Spirit, they actually become a part of the family. Listen, beginning in verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit who... The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. As recipients of the Spirit of God, being led by the Spirit of God, you have become children of God. You are now a part of the family. Such an encouraging passage. You know, there are many different reasons why a child will be given up for adoption. Sometimes it may be court-ordered. Maybe it's because mom and dad simply don't have the resources to properly care for their child. Maybe mom and dad weren't ready to have kids in the first place and adoption was simply the best choice over abortion. I know of a young lady who goes to school with my daughter. She was officially adopted this past week after losing both parents to death in recent years. Sometimes the fact that an individual is adopted can cause discomfort because we feel like someone else didn't choose us or it reminds us of the pain of our past. But there's a much greater side to adoption. I'm not talking about the giving end of adoption. I'm I'm talking about the receiving end of adoption. Yes, someone gave you up for adoption, but in the act of adoption, somebody else chose to make you a part of their forever family. They loved you too much to let you go someplace else. They welcomed you in, not merely as a servant, doing all the chores that nobody else wants to do. Instead, they welcomed you in, offering all the benefits of family membership. You have been chosen. You are loved. I want you to see this from a relationship with God aspect. You were a sinner living in rebellion. You were hostile to God. You were dead with little to offer. Yet God offered you the chance to truly live. And then he said, I want you to be a part of my forever family. I want you to be identified by my family name. Do you know how cool that is? Out of the billions of people in our world, God chose you to be a part of his forever family. I know we are a free will people, and I believe today that we must choose to follow him. But do you know that God loved you before you even knew that he was real? It's who he is. He chose you. Now, according to our passage, you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But you know that there's a great risk to that. And I mean on God's part. As you take on the family name, there is a great responsibility that falls upon you. You now represent this family, in your every action, 
in your every attitude, with every word that comes from your mouth. It's actually a great responsibility on you. What if you misrepresent the family? What if you don't honor them in the way you live your life? What if the family is attacked? Are you going to cut and run? Or are you part of that family? Among the New Testament believers, they would have associated the family status with Christ as being both reward and suffering. Yes, we are children of God. Remember, uh, it was John and James's mom who said, hey, when you establish your kingdom, can my son sit on your left and right side? They understood the reward side of this. I want to be a part of the family. Then they also would have known that Jesus said, if you are to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. See, they would have seen the suffering side of it too. I am so glad that God chose to make me a part of his forever family. And I am committed to being a part of that family regardless of what tomorrow holds. My faith is not an experiment. It's not a test where I'll try it for a little while and if things don't work out, I'll just go do something else. No, I have been made a part of the family. I am all in. And until the day that I take my last breath, I am going to live as if this family is mine. I challenge you as the body of Christ. That's what's available to you today. Will you commit to being the body of Christ, the family of God? And if you will, will you allow God to change who you are? There are things that... I've been a believer since 1990. I wish I could tell you I was a finished product already. I'm not. My guess is some of y'all have been believers longer than me. Are you a finished product? Nope. Let's keep pressing on. Let's be the family God called us to be. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, I'm so grateful to be able to call upon your name. I'm so grateful to call upon your name, not just as my master, but as father. I pray today that you would help me every single day to better represent the family name. I pray for every individual in this room that you would make us a people that is fully devoted to this family. That if it means receiving great reward and we know that there is a great reward that is promised to us, we know there is a day that is coming that we will enter into your presence and never again have to deal with sin and sorrow and pain and death. Lord, we also know that being a part of this family may require us taking a stand. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be bold and to be faithful, to love you and the rest of our family the way you have already loved us. Father, I pray today that if we are anything less than fully devoted to you, that right now you would fill us with a heart of repentance. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that we might truly desire nothing more than to know you better. Lord, I pray that we would never be satisfied in any other place but governed by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm not apologizing for going long, but I will say if you're a guest, I don't normally go this long. 
but I am really glad you came, and I don't think any of y'all got up and left. So thank you for being with us this morning. Come back again if you can. It's great to have you today.